This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Leo Damrosch about his new and very fine book, Adventurer, The Life and Times of Giacomo Casanova. Your own book, Leo, is as much a wonder to behold as Casanova's own autobiography, The Massive History of My Life. Perhaps you can begin with the challenge you set yourself in your writing of it, how to distinguish the man and the myth, and whether it is possible to do so. Casanova, during his lifetime, was known as a serial seducer of women. An aspiring priest, an army officer, a con man, a magus, an alchemist, a violinist, a mathematician, a Masonic master, an entrepreneur, a diplomat, a gambler, and a spy. Why do you choose as your title, adventurer? Well, um, I'll start with the man and the myth, and um, then I hope we'll turn to several episodes or relationships in his life, uh, only a few of the many, many that he describes to us, all of them different. And all of them, I think, quite brilliantly recreated by him. Uh, the myth is that he's a Don Juan or Don Giovanni. And I think it's fair to say that he actually did love women. And one reason he was seductive is they were flattered by that because it didn't seem fake and it wasn't fake. He did, however, certainly move on from every single relationship. There was only one where I think he probably was more deeply in love in the terms that we would appreciate with somebody who was married, who decided to go back to her husband, who told him it was all over. And um, that actually was something he didn't get over easily. Most of them he got over fast, and he liked to think the women got over it fast. He's been called a narcissist who can't acknowledge that people might ever get hurt by him. So it's not so much, I think, that he was consciously lying as that he was always putting the best spin on things that had happened. He's also writing years and years later. He's He's writing in the 1790s when he's approaching the age of 70, remembering the first 40 or so years of his life. He doesn't finish this enormous autobiography because he gets to the point where it got too repetitive. Um, he'd lost his charm. Basically, he wasn't Casanova anymore. And writing in a kind of exile in Bohemia, modern Czechoslovakia, uh, he was quite consciously um, reliving the past because it was so much more satisfying than the disappointing present. Now, he called his memoir, not memoir, which was the normal word then, that is just remembering things that happened in somebody's usually public career. Uh, but he didn't call it an autobiography because that word was not yet invented. Uh, they thought it up in the 19th century to describe exactly what he was doing or before him, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, to really try to understand the whole shape and meaning of his life, not just certain events in it. The French title is Histoire de ma vie, and histoire has a double meaning in French to this day. It can mean history in the literal sense, but it can also mean a story. He knew he was telling a story, but I think he thought it was based on reality. And in fact, all his life, he kept elaborate notes on what he had been experiencing from day to day. At one point, he had to open a trunk in Barcelona for customs inspection, and they were startled to find it was three-quarters full of notebooks because he carried them wherever he went. 
Uh, notebooks are lost, but I think he, he used them as uh, source material. What he did certainly do is sometimes um, rewrite the past in ways that other records happen to survive that let us understand. But I think as a whole, it is essentially a truth-telling document. And particularly in, in this sense, Richard Holmes, one of my favorite biographers, said once that the stories people tell about themselves are the reality of who they think they are. And even if details in them might be disproven, still it is valuable to know how they conceived the meaning of their own lives. And that is certainly what Casanova gives us. You quote somebody as saying that the autobiography of pleasure, written for pleasure in order to give pleasure, also been called a hymn to life. And, That's and, right. and, and the truth is that Casanova is a brilliant writer. Well, in fact, as I was just kind of suggesting, while he was writing it, he was in poor health. He'd been expelled from his native Venice, forbidden never to return. He'd actually been thrown out of a number of European countries, including England and France and Spain, for various misdemeanors. And it could have been easy to let that final depression and you know loathing of life color the whole thing, and it does not. He tells it as it felt when he was young and fresh and optimistic. Uh, so it's, in fact, what a good novelist will do. Yes, I mean, it's been also compared to Balzac's uh, comedy Humane, I mean, or even even uh, Mark Twain's autobiography. I mean, it, it's the passages that you quote in your book uh, show, at least in my mind, uh, Casanova to be a, a really vivid writer. One way of thinking about it is it's I've never tried to count apparently something like 125 affairs with women are individually mentioned, sometimes in passing, sometimes for many pages, and they're all different. He makes you understand that that person and what happened between him and her was unique. Uh, and that's an extraordinary skill to have, and certainly not what Don Giovanni would have done, which was just to check off another conquest. He also describes his love affairs, however brief they are, as transcendent moments out of time. They were like an intensification of experience so complete in itself that it can't last forever. But while it's going on, it's it, it was almost like a religious experience. He sometimes used religious language. And I think people have said rightly, it's not that he's you know trying to debase religion. He's trying to ennoble the experience of basically sex. And he has a wonderful story. When he was quite young, uh, his first affair with a married lady, and of course, in the 18th century, most marriages were arranged. The couple might barely know each other and not have any particular interest in each other. And it was not uncommon even to condone extramarital relationships. And he was in Rome. He, would, he had thought he might enter the priesthood, although he was pretty much an unbeliever all his life. But the church was a well-paying, prestigious career. A young man without, without money could enter. Um, and while he was there, he had an affair with this lady. And uh, at one point, they were making love in one of those formal gardens that there are in Rome and finished just before her husband and her mother showed up. And afterwards, Casanova said, what would you have done, you know, if they caught us in the act? And she said, I wouldn't have done anything. At a moment like that, you're not conscious of anything else in the world. And that's what he's trying for. I mean, it's, it's called making the voluptuous sacred. You use that phrase. 
That's right. What does he mean by thinking of himself as a libertine? I'll go back because you, you mentioned the title and they go together. It, it turns out that adventurers were a kind of subculture that was very well known in 18th century Europe. And books have been written about them. Uh, at least 50 of these so-called adventurers knew each other personally, often ran into each other. Many of them show up in Casanova's book. And they were basically rootless individuals with talent of some kind, uh, I suppose basically con men. Many of them were professional gamblers. Uh, he himself became a very successful gambler. That was a way not just to uh, get unearned money, but to, uh, to be admitted to a higher social class than he was born to, uh, just as the reason he became a Mason was that they were a kind of international brotherhood, many of them noble. Uh, and if you were a fellow Mason and you knew the handshake, uh, then you belonged as kind of spiritual brothers. Uh, but they moved these adventurers um, freely through Europe, usually because they were forced to leave town, because they ran some kind of a scam and it got exposed. And um, usually they didn't have to go to jail, but they'd be told never to come back. And that was certainly what something that went on in his life. Um, so it was like a way of parasitically um, benefiting from the rigid structures of what's called the Ancien Regime, the old uh, uh, society before the French Revolution. And in fact, he was not a revolutionary. He was horrified by the French Revolution because one of these writers and adventurers said they need a stable social system in order to climb up it and exploit it. And if everybody's supposed to be equal, they've lost their the angle that they've been working. So that's what an adventurer is. A libertine was a kind of philosopher, a worldly one, not an abstract one. It goes back to ancient Rome, to the poetry of Horace and the philosophy of Epicurus. Uh, and the idea is most so-called moral rules and taboos are artificial and are indeed imposed by society or by its religious arm uh, as a kind of thought control. Uh, and we ought to be free, which is what libertinism means. We, we should have liberty. And if you're not hurting other people, and if you're doing what comes naturally, that is what nature wants you to do. The idea is a kind of freedom, not just of conduct, though it certainly includes that, but of thought, uh, that you don't buy into inherited cliches and don't internalize rules that make your life unhappy, that have no actual basis except... Um, social conformity. So it's it derives from the philosophy of Epicurus, right? That's right. What is natural is, is right. And instinct and appetite and desire are natural. Yeah, and although they didn't have a theory of evolution at that time, uh, the notion was nature has taught us certain behaviors because they actually are life-preserving and uh, give satisfaction. And all the ten thou shalt nots of orthodox religion are a way of keeping us from being natural. What did Casanova look like? He was at least six one. Um, one of his passports, you didn't have a single passport. You always had a new one made for a given trip. Makes him the equivalent of six three. The average adult male in Europe at that time was maybe five six. So he was a giant, very muscular, built like Hercules. One of his friends said, very athletic skilled swordsman, and although not conventionally handsome, he was very striking looking. And it was pretty clear if he walked into a room, not just because of his height, but by his entire charisma, everybody would turn and look at him. 
And from an early age, he learned to exploit that. He also took a good deal of thought to the way he dressed. Yeah. Well, that was part of being an adventurer. Yeah. There were no, you know, standard ID cards and so on. And you pretty much could be who you said you were. Uh, and at various points, he pretended to be a count or some other kind of nobleman. He was the son of an impoverished actor and actress wife. Grandfather was a shoemaker. But the clothing was a kind of stage prop, as were, you know, jewel boxes, you know, snuff boxes. And he got some sort of decoration from the Pope at one point, and he always made sure to wear that. It was very dramatic to look at and powdered his hair in the approved way. And so it was, it was really like an actor getting ready to go on stage was how he costumed himself. And he, whenever possible, he, you know, before that, he's also a voracious reader of books. Yeah. He almost has a, somebody says he has a carnal relationship with books. Yeah, that's right. Um, one point he was in Germany and there happened to be a great library at Wolfenbüttel. And he spent a whole week in there, sort of as long as it was open and show up at the next morning and just immersed himself in books that they had there. And he was always carrying books around with him. Yeah, he was an omnivorous reader. And how many languages, I mean, does he have? Not as many as you might think, because he felt like there was no point speaking a language if he couldn't speak effortlessly and indeed with wit. And it took him a while to get there in French when he was first in Paris, where he ended up over the years living for long periods of time. He would make blunders, as anyone does who's learned French from tutorials and books. And people would laugh at him. And he got to the point where that never happened anymore. So he could be as fluent in French as he is in Italian, or also Veneziano, which is the, the quite different dialect that they still speak in Venice. And except for Spanish, he spent a year, almost a year in Spain, um, which I've always been told Italians very easily can learn because there's a lot of overlap between Italian and Spanish. He didn't try to learn English. He was in London for a whole year and didn't learn any English at all. He was in Russia for uh, more than half a year, didn't learn any Russian, never learned any German. And it wasn't because he looked down on those languages. He just couldn't be Casanova in those languages. He was fluent in Latin. Yeah, because that, that was his ecclesiastical training. That was the, still the language of the church. Yeah, and he, if he met somebody who'd been educated sufficiently in Latin, they could have a conversation. I'm pretty sure when he was in London, he, he mentions meeting Samuel Johnson, uh, who at that time was working on his great dictionary of the English language. And they had a long chat about etymology of certain words. And I have no doubt they were speaking in Latin because Johnson couldn't speak much French and uh, Casanova couldn't speak a word of English, but they both could have expressed themselves freely in Latin. You say at one point, He's constantly on the move, just the way freedom is like the wind. I mean, it, he goes where it blows. He never knows. He really never knows where he's going to end up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an improvised life, and that's definitely the way he liked it. And in 1760, he spent time in France, England, Poland, Russia, Spain, Constantinople. You can travel, you know, something like 40,000 miles on foot, in, in carriages. It's almost unbelievable, you know, at three miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, and, the, uh, and he's usually traveling with a woman. How does he manage that? Well, um, usually it's some um, somebody he's recently connected with and usually uh, on the move like himself. They're, some of them were actually called adventurers. 
it would be understood it's a temporary arrangement. You know, this is not going to last. He never came close to marrying anyone and avoided it when it looked like it might be about to happen. He's a rolling stone, no question. I think in his own autobiography, I mean, he has, you give the numbers, something like 140 affairs uh, described with specific individuals. As I said earlier, some of them in very little detail, just enough to make you understand what was going on. Some of them are like novellas. Yeah. Very fully developed. One, which is interesting because he realized in the end that he had been used rather than being the seducer, was with a nun in Venice. He calls her M.M. to protect her identity. She was definitely a noblewoman. Uh, and what was usual in Venice was to preserve the integrity and wealth of the noble class. Uh, only one daughter and one son was supposed to get married. And the rest of them might have lovers, but illegitimate children couldn't inherit anything by law. And often the girls would be put into a convent, not because they had a feeling of a religious vocation, but just as a suitable place to put them. And one of these took an interest in him when he was there during visiting hours and sent him a note by an intermediary saying if he would like to spend some time in her private um, casino, it was called, which didn't then mean a gambling den. It just meant a little house uh, on the island of Murano, which is just outside Venice. Then they could have a good time together. And he showed up there. And I believe all this has been verified is true. I'll just go on a little longer. So they make love. He shows her things she never knew were possible. They have a wonderful time. And afterwards, she says, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but my actual lover and he found out that was the French ambassador to Venice, was watching us through a spy hole. This is actually his casino. And he wants us to do it again, but you mustn't acknowledge that, you know, he's there. Didn't bother Casanova. This was a contact he was going to make that served him well when he got to Paris with an important French dignitary who was a cardinal of the church later on and nevertheless had girlfriends wherever he went. When it was all over, he realized basically he'd been set up by that guy and his non-girlfriend to give them a vicarious experience. And far from being masterful, he had been used. Uh, and he's quite rueful about it. And it's, a, it's like a novella. It must be 80 pages in his, uh, in his autobiography. And I think he's telling the truth about all the complexities of the thing and what he didn't understand at the time. Uh, there was another woman in the, in the story. Yeah, first, he, first there was a, um, a girl who could have married him. They married very young then, and whose brother, who was collaborating with Casanova in some kind of a scam, thought, if I can get him married to my sister, you know, then that will, that will cut me into some profits that I can foresee. And the sister was very attractive, and she did fall in love with Casanova, and her mother apparently encouraged it because Casanova at that time was being treated almost like the son of a nobleman, but it was a genuine relationship for as long as that nobleman lived. But he got her pregnant, and unfortunately, it turned out her father would not allow her to get married before she was 21, so that couldn't have happened. And so, in fact, she was stuck into a convent before her parents knew she was pregnant. She happened to have a miscarriage, but while she was in that convent, she was the lover of that other nun, M.M., and uh, in the end, they became a threesome. I mean, it's just a kind of more than novelistic story. And yet there's enough evidence to confirm that it probably did 
pretty much happened the way he describes it. There are a number of incidents where he's in bed with two women. Yeah, often young women. Often he likes you know, sisters. And sometimes mothers and daughters and sisters. It's And the other thing that's extraordinary, at least to you know, a Puritan American like myself, is the, is the hours that he can spend in bed. I mean, it, it four hours, five hours. I mean, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. He, he really values the experience for itself. It's not just um, another notch on his, you know, on his rifle. He, uh, he, he, he loves it so much he doesn't want it to end. And he's proud of his his own prowess. And he tries to arouse the same kind of experience in in the women that he loves. That's right. And when he starts losing it, and he, you know, lived an arduous life, and he started losing that extraordinary potency when he was still in his 30s, and it was like a tragic loss. It was like he's losing who he is. Let's talk a little bit about Venice. He's born in Venice in 1725, and what is... Venice light in those days, and and uh, who are Casanova's parents? Uh, I mentioned they're both actors. His father wasn't a very successful one; um, made his living mostly by doing um, some some kind of um, skilled trade. Uh, his mother, though, was a star actress. She was the favorite of the great Goldoni, who people say is the greatest Italian playwright of the 18th century. And in fact, he didn't know her very well, although he worshipped her. He said she was as beautiful as the day, because often troops of Italian actors would work abroad. She worked in London at a time when his younger brother Francesco was born, and there were rumors that the real father of Francesco was the Prince of Wales, who became George George the um, Second. I think that's probably not true. But she was in a different world from himself. He was brought up by a loving grandmother, his mother's mother. And that was an incredibly fortunate thing. There's a Belgian psychologist, Lydia Flem, who wrote a very good book about Casanova's relationships, who said that grandmother gave him the crucial thing for a child to feel completely wanted and appreciated. Uh, and it's like that gave him the self-esteem early in life that he might not otherwise have had. As for Venice, Venice was... It was like the 18th century Las Vegas. It had been the commercial headquarters of the Mediterranean back in the Renaissance, but that was all gone. It used to have a lot of territories in the, off, off toward Greece. It had lost those. And um, it found it made – it was viable as a gambling den. It had an official – it was called the Ridotto – uh, it was the casino where most places gambling might be condoned or might even be illegal. There it was run by the aristocracy. And there was lots of prostitution, and it's a very beautiful city. And lots of Europeans went there for a good time. Uh, and so he grew up in a city where people wore masks half of the year, not just during Carnival, which is like Mardi Gras, but more than that, really, it's been studied. So you could pretend nobody knew who you were. It was like incognito. And if somebody did recognize your voice, it would be very bad form to admit that they knew who you were. So everything there was like masking and disguising and improvising. And it was a culture that suited him perfectly. And it, it shaped him. The book, His History of My Life, is an enormous book. I mean, it's 
3,000 large pages written in French. And it describes, let's say, the first 50 years of Casanova's life, which is the one that's filled with adventure and incident after incident, love affair after love affair, escape after escape. And then that's where the narrative starts. Have, have you have you read the the book in 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 its original form? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 well written. Yes, yes, extremely well written. Yeah, the great Stendhal, as a wonderful novelist, adored that book when it was published in his lifetime. And, w- and what about Stephen Zweig? Did, didn't he admire it too? Absolutely, um, a lot of very good writers have admired it. Uh, but but they all only knew the um, cleaned up and Baudelaireized version, and uh, it's only now that we really read the actual words that he wrote. Talk about if you can remember the swindle with Madame Durfey. <laughs> I'll try to do it briefly. He presented as a magus, as you mentioned. He kind of, somewhat believed that there might be some truth to it. Uh, this was a period when various occult arts had still not been totally discredited. There were a lot of people who still believed in alchemy and astrology. The great Isaac Newton had a huge collection of technical books on those subjects. And I think John Maynard Keynes said, we shouldn't think of Newton as the first modern scientist. We should think of him as the last of the magicians. And after all, alchemy became chemistry. It's kind of the same word. Why couldn't you, if you only understood the correct formulas, turn lead into gold. Maybe it's possible. So Casanova exploited that credulousness, even on the part of very intelligent people. And in the case of Madame Dufay, who was an incredibly wealthy French lady, widowed, she had already formed the belief, other con men got to her first, that she could be reborn in a child and, in effect, have eternal life if she could get the right magus to perform the whatever mysterious skills were required. And Casanova convinced her he was that guy. Uh, And over a period of years, he would keep postponing for various plausible reasons. He managed to extract a fortune out of that lady. He was careful not to just expect cash. A lot of it was in jewels, often which were meant to be presented in some magical ceremony to the uh, to the spirit world, and then, of course, he would fence them. And eventually it got exposed, and there's a very touching remark. Usually she's described as a complete lunatic. How, how could she fall for this guy? There's a wonderful um, French scholar named Marie-Francoise Luna uh, who says what he did was he broke her heart. It was the belief that this person cherished, and he smashed it, and not only ripped her off, but left her without what it you know sustained her. It's a quite moving thought, and he was perfectly heartless about it. Uh, his view was if a rich person is willing to be conned, they've got it coming to them. And if I don't do it, somebody else will. He, he was really pretty, um, pretty merciless that way. I think that's worse, really, to me, ethically, than most of his sexual relationships. You know, you say in the book that he never expresses remorse or guilt, uh, but it's all lighthearted and transcendent and the joy of life. But there, 
There is a dark side to his behavior. Do you want to talk about that? Almost every one of those relationships can be seen as, even if they were in a, in a way consensual, as exploiting his power and his freedom at the expense of somebody who doesn't have either of those things. And one reason he made it work was he always convinced them that they had the power. And in a sense, you know, he was definitely really attracted to them. He wasn't faking it. They felt moved by his adoration of them, but it was always temporary. Much of it was more exploitative than he will admit, and some of it was extremely so. And we do have one very poignant set of letters. Uh, there are about 40 of them, but there had been 200 that he had originally saved. He must have destroyed the others. Maybe he thought they made him look worse. These don't make him look good. He did get engaged in Paris to a brilliant and gorgeous young woman named Manon Balletti. Her parents were Italian actors. And he strung her along for maybe three years. And she kept thinking they were going to get married. And he kept blowing hot and cold. And she probably didn't sleep with him. But he himself would have admitted she was well advised not to because once you get what you want, then you want something else instead. That's his own libertine principle. But eventually she saw, I just am never going to be able to trust this guy. But her letters are full of moving expressions of longing for him and wanting to believe in him. And if we had letters like that from some of these other women, we'd have a much more rounded understanding of what was going on. But I think those are enough to suggest, even if she got away in the end, more or less unhurt, still it was very wounding to think this guy who's acting like he's in love with her is ever going to settle down and make it permanent. Nothing is permanent with him. He's he's constantly moving. I mean, you, you talk about his, that's his idea of freedom. You know, where the wind blows. Yeah. It's not, it's not true, not just of where you physically are on the map, but of no. what your relationships are. He welcomes the risk because there's always a risk in that. But he likes the risk. That's part of his being an adventurer, right? Yeah, and it's, um, it's, this has been said about Stendhal, the same principle that just as a passionate love affair is all-encompassing while it's going on, so really genuinely risking your life is like an existential affirmation. You know, I'm not just playing around. And I'll just quickly describe the two instances which became well-known in his lifetime and which he actually wrote up in little mini autobiographical treatises about what happened. One was he was arrested probably for free thinking, but also for pretending he's a nobleman when he's not, which in Venice was a very bad idea. But they wouldn't tell him what the charges were. And he was incarcerated in the top floor of the Ducal Palace, uh, which in the ground floor is a majestic kind of showpiece of uh, Venetian power. Up there, it's a garret of simple, basically unfurnished cells. And it has a lead roof. It's, uh, the cells were known as ipiombi, which means the leads, so that in the summertime, Venice is very hot. If you've ever been there in the summer, you couldn't bear to even wear clothes in your cell. It, it's just scaldingly hot. And then in the winter, it was correspondingly cold up there. And he just made up his mind, I'm leaving. He didn't deny that they had a right to arrest him, but he said, I have a right as a human being to get my life back. 
And he was the only person who had ever escaped from there. And it's a long story that he tells brilliantly, and I won't tell it now, but it entailed getting in touch with an accomplice, which wasn't easy to do up there, and boring through the lead roof with a bolt that he had found lying around when they let him take little walks for his health in the attic up there, uh, and getting up on the roof in the middle of the night. It turned out it was wet with dew. It's a sloping metal roof. It was hard not to just fall to your death. It would be the stone courtyard if you did fall down and you would die. He found a ladder that some workmen had left up there and figured out how to maneuver that so he could crawl down it and get into a dormer window. And as he was doing that, all of a sudden he slipped and he was hanging by his elbows from the gutter up there, dangling over the courtyard. Uh, his arms started to go to sleep. If he relaxed his grip, he would die. Uh, he managed to get in through the dormer window. He had taken the precaution of putting on some fancy clothes that he'd happened to have on when they arrested him. And when he got down to the ground floor, a guard saw him and figured, oh, he's somebody who got locked in by mistake because he looked like he was headed for a party and he let him out, got a gondola, went to the mainland, didn't see Venice again for 18 years. And that was totally risking his life because I would rather die than go on rotting in this jail cell. And it's all true. And when he finally did get back to Venice 18 years later, the judges, not like not any more the ones that had convicted him, but their successors, all invited him to dinner and wanted him to tell this wonderful story. It made him a kind of a celebrity. And the other, which I could tell more briefly, is he was living in Warsaw years later. And uh, through no fault of his own, a drunken aristocratic army officer insulted him in such a way that he saw, I can't hold my head up if I don't challenge this guy to a duel. And I've read books about 18th century dueling. It was just weird. It, it persisted in the American South right into the 19th century. If somebody insults you, then you have to give them a chance to kill you. Because if you don't, they've gotten away with something. Uh, and even if you get killed, you've, you've received satisfaction. It was just a weird, weird code. But he did it. And it turned out the guy wouldn't fight with swords because he said, you might be highly trained and I'm not. We're going to fight with pistols, which will be will be completely equal. No, they weren't. The other guy was a crack shot. He could shoot at a sword edge from a long distance, and the bullet would split in two when it hit the sword. They fought the duel with seconds and everything, and they both did get wounded. But actually, the nobleman, his name was Count Branicki, got wounded worse, and they both recovered. And Branicki became his close friend because you know, you risked your life uh, as I risked mine, and now we're equals. It's just an extraordinary thing where he would have rather died than lose his status, which was anyway kind of artificial status that he was only pretending to. Uh, but the risking the life was very real. Last question. Uh, what lesson do we learn uh, about today uh, from reading your book and, and reading Casanova's life? I mean, he, he wouldn't have become famous today. That's a minefield I had to tread very carefully through when I wrote this book. Unfortunately, my wonderful editor at Yale University Press and also my wife were very helpful in detecting places where I was not thinking things through. But I think quite a lot of women, modern women writers have admired Casanova and have regarded him. Well, the, the psychoanalyst, his book I mentioned, calls him Casanova, the man who loved women. And in a sense, there's a kind of truth to that. Uh, he also exploited women, uh, and uh, there's no minimizing that. But what I've also tried to do in that book, and as the 
adventurer title suggests is to say he was many other things too. And you started out by listing some of them. So it's a, a, a view of a whole culture, which is gone, uh, which ended in 1789, basically, but which while it lasted was a fascinating one. And Casanova more than anybody apparently gives us an inside look at what it felt like to live then. And that's, I don't know what that's a lesson for us today, but I think he would not have been Bernie Madoff. You know, he would not have spent his whole life on a single scam, rubbed his hands because more and more people were falling for it. Uh, it was just a game that he kept playing and kept, as you have said, moving on from. Well, I think it's a marvelous book, Leo. I do. And, uh, I certainly enjoyed reading it and admire the way you put it together. Well, thank you so much, Lewis. Well, thank you, Leo Damrosh, for speaking with us today about your new book, Adventurer, The Life and Times of Giacomo Casanova. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.